This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today, or make a donation directly on diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special geoengineering edition, we have an interview from DocBot about the role of art in climate change. But first up, here's a quick guide to geoengineering. Geoengineering is about changing the climate in ways that don't involve reducing the emission of carbon dioxide from business as usual. It's been very hard to get people to agree to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. So there's people who wish to keep on with business as usual and don't want to cut down their emissions that would rather engineer the climate directly. And there are people who don't trust that we'll get people to agree to reducing their emissions and who want to engineer the climate directly to save the world. And from an interview on ABC's Late Line, here's Australia's mining billionaire and Member of Parliament, Clive Palmer, speaking about nature and its carbon emissions. Now we know that 97% of the world's carbon comes from natural sources. Why don't we have money to look at how we can reduce the overall carbon signature by reducing it from nature, not just from industry? It's entirely wrong focused. By changing the climate with geoengineering, you're changing the world's weather. Specifically, where and when it rains. This is life or death for all nations. There's no second chance. This is why climate engineering by one nation or a group of nations on its own is likely to be seen as an act of war by other nations. It should benefit all and be agreed by all, which is a tall order. What nation would sign up to lose all their reign to benefit some foreign corporations? Here's some of the more popular forms of geoengineering that have been suggested. Ocean seeding with iron particles to fertilise photosynthetic plankton blooms. It's hoped that there'll be photosynthetic plankton and not algal blooms, and that they'll sink and store the carbon dioxide. Algal blooms could poison and clog entire areas, creating dead zones starved of oxygen where no life can survive. It's not been proved either way whether photosynthetic plankton sink or simply get eaten. You may end up with a surge of fish, but no less carbon dioxide. American businessman Russ George is accused of performing an illegal experiment in ocean seeding with iron off the coast of British Columbia, Canada, after being refused permission from the authorities in 2012. He's being investigated for dumping 100 tonnes of iron sulphate, creating a plankton bloom with an area of 10,000 square kilometres that's visible from space. Aerosols in the atmosphere. Sulphur dioxide particles released to reflect sunlight. They're relatively cheap and fast-acting, but they could harm the ozone layer. They could change cloud formation and thus reduce reflection instead of increasing it and accidentally make global warming worse. 
Sulfur dioxide is notorious for creating acid rain and could harm plants and animals. It's very likely that this sort of intervention would cause the monsoons to change, leaving large parts of Asia without water. Reduced sunlight, of course, harms plants and animals. There's a large group of businessmen who'd really like to try an experiment using sulfur dioxide particles in the air over the Arctic Circle to try and slow down the melting of the ice cap. Rumours are that certain billionaires are being courted because they could afford to fund the whole thing without any need for international governments to agree with each other. Planting trees, known as afforestation or direct action. Even if you covered the deserts with trees, they wouldn't absorb enough carbon dioxide to make a difference to the temperature. However, they would reduce the reflectiveness of the desert, and so actually keep more of the heat in the atmosphere than before they were planted. This seems to be part of the Australian government's direct action plan. Cloud seeding, creating white clouds by spraying micro droplets of salted water into the air. Seeding needs to be continuous for it to work. On the plus side, you'd see effects within the first year. It might change weather patterns and ocean currents. The salts could pollute when they come down with the rain, depending on the types of salts used. Space sun shields to reflect sunlight before it reaches the Earth. They would be hugely expensive to build and maintain, slow to get into place, and would change the climate in unpredictable ways. Reducing sunlight would hurt plants, animals, and solar power. Mr. Burns did exactly this on the Simpsons episode, Who Shot Mr. Burns? Desert mirrors to reflect sunlight away from the Earth. It could be very expensive to cover 10% of the Earth's surface, which is what would be required. The benefit is it would have a very quick effect on global warming. The downside is it would harm desert ecosystems and change the world's weather. Mining to simulate weathering. Weathering of rock exposes silicates that absorb carbon dioxide over many thousands of years. Miners could dig up silicates and spread them on the surface to get the same effect much more quickly. The used silicates could be buried back in the ground or at sea, taking the carbon dioxide with them. Mining and dispersing silicates is very energy intensive and a lot of the earth would have to be dug up. It's slow and may harm the soil, plants and marine life. Ocean upwelling. Instead of seeding nutrients, you dig them up from the ocean floor and pump them up to the surface. But once you start pumping, you better keep going because the models and some small experiments show that any initial cooling is offset by extra warming quite quickly when you stop. Upwelling cools the ocean surface, which is likely to reduce evaporation and reduce cloud formation and rainfall, which could lead to warming the earth. Sprinkling lime into the ocean. This could reduce the ocean's acidity and increase its ability to absorb carbon dioxide. You need a lot of limestone. In fact, you'd have to grind up the Alps and not only have every ship in the world dumping calcium carbonate into the ocean, but you'd need to build lots more ships. Solar power stops being an alternative, even when it's cheaper than coal, if the sunlight is blocked by fossil fuel companies. Just ask Mr Burns. He must be very proud. <clears throat> no, not while my greatest nemesis still provides our customers with free light, heat and energy. I call this enemy the sun. Since the beginning of time, man has yearned to destroy the sun. I will do the next best thing. Block it out. Good God. Imagine it, Smithers. Electrical lights and heaters running all day long. But, sir, every plant and tree will die. Uh, 
Owls will deafen us with incessant hooting. Uh, the town sundial will be useless. Take one last look at the sun, Springfield. And that clip was from Who Shot Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the community radio network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now the role of art in the debate on global warming and geoengineering solutions. Josh Wodak is an artist and researcher working on various aspects of climate change. He spoke to the technological artists at Dorkbox Sydney the other week, and I caught up with him in a quiet corner of a noisy pub afterward. Geoengineering is something that's come out uh, or taken more prominence in the last sort of 10 years, looking at ways of engineering Earth climate to try and mitigate um, away from climate change. And so what sort of art are you creating to do with climate change and geoengineering? Really what I try to do is take climate data, such as greenhouse gas emissions levels. They're not of great interest to people. They're not very accessible. They're a little bit sort of abstract because there's an X coordinate and a Y coordinate, etc. And look at that data and think about how they can map that onto something that's more um, impactful and intuitive to people, such as the human body or physical sites of a city to show where sea level would come up to on a physical building in different climate change scenarios. So that's the kind of, so some are sculpture, some are video, some are sound, but really the idea is about taking data, taking landscapes or human landscapes, such as human body, and trying to bring the two together. Yeah. So you're giving people a feel for what climate change is likely to happen and how it will affect them personally. Yeah, like, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's, it can be thought of as, as, as an emotional issue in the sense that it's like, you know, what does this mean for me or what does this mean for the people I care about? But that's something which, that's not what the role of the scientists to do. The scientists, there, here's facts, here's evidence. And I think one of the things that artists can do is sort of say, well, what would this city look like or what would your body look like if, you know, at the moment, say, hypothetically speaking, in this part of the world, the, the sea is lapping at your um, ankle. And then if it was actually, you know, in 20 years' time, at the equivalent of coming up to your knee or something like that, that's got much more feeling if you can demonstrate to someone that than a scientist saying there will be a 30-centimetre rise. So, do you know what I mean? I take that sort of uh, uh, information in terms of the, 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 the factual information and look at ways you can create stories around that because I think that we respond a lot better to stories than we do to just being given fact after fact after fact. Geoengineering is where people try and do something about climate change, not by reducing emissions, but instead by changing the climate directly. And with unforeseen consequences, other than they'll probably upset the monsoon season. Uh, So what have you been doing around geoengineering? So, I mean, that's very good you pointed out the side effects, because this is one of the things in the more rosy proposals for geoengineering is they talk a lot about oh this could reduce temperature by x percent or this could stop sea level rising by y percent but don't pay too much attention to how that would dramatically affect things like rainfall patterns which you know are hugely instrumental to agriculture and survival of of life on earth Um, so i'm trying to present uh, i made an installation last year that was um, produced and exhibited in newcastle called shape things to come And what I did with that was look at a particular geoengineering proposal, which is about mimicking what volcanoes do. When a volcano goes off 
as it has since time immemorial, they shoot little bits of sulfur um, uh, dioxide particles into the atmosphere. And it's kind of like putting a little bit of a, a shake cloth over the, over the earth. That's what they do. We know that. We've studied it. And so some people are proposing to deliberately put different, slightly different types of sulfur particles in the atmosphere to create this kind of a symbolic shake cloth. And that has many, well, many, many people who are against that, many, some people who are for it, but it has one of the side effects is it would change the color, color of the sky and turn it white. So the one I created in Newcastle, the Shape Things to Come installation, looked at the trade-off. So for each degree of temperature increase, what would be the effect of the color of the sky in terms of trying to go from, say, a six-degree trajectory, which is what we're currently tracking towards, and if you had a bar graph on a wall down to a one-degree trajectory, what would be the trade-off in the color of the sky for each level of sea level rise associated with that? So it's kind of a graph, if you like, although it's not obviously trying to be scientific. And then I mapped that onto an iconic structure in Newcastle, which is the ocean baths uh, right in the heart of the city, which are used to regulate the flow of water in a human-scale environment, like a swimming pool. So the idea is to show people in a city something that the equivalent of like you know our opera house in Sydney, to show people in a city this is what the structure would be like in these different scenarios, as a way of trying to think through th- the way the city would look in these different scenarios. So you were also talking about scenarios where they would block some of the sunlight by putting a giant shade at the Lagrange point, millions of kilometers away from the earth um that's that's it's one of the more outlandish scenarios because it's probably the most technologically uh complicated and the most uh fraught and uh, hypothetical because of course uh, no one has ever done anything like that before and may not ever be able to do it for various financial technological reasons but at the same time Although it'd be very easy maybe 10 years ago to say, oh, that's just science fiction nonsense. With the biophysical reality of the world we live in, now there's more and more people coming and saying, well, here are the, here are the physics, here are the chemistry. These are immutable laws. They have no disrespect. Sorry, they have no concern for human uh, 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 hubris or timescales. And if the physics says X and the chemistry says Y, then the only way out of scenario Z, which no one wants, is something like uh, putting uh, so this this uh, uh, sort of sun shield proposal is around um, four trillion discs around sort of 20 centimeters wide one and a half million kilometers from earth um, between earth and the sun so it's kind of um yeah it's we, we're past the point where where someone can just say oh that's just that's just science fiction nonsense because it sounds like science fiction but it's actually not so i'm working on a proposal to try and think about how I can uh, that that from what I understand that that would cost around four trillion dollars to do so I'm trying to look at something where you say you know for someone that doesn't have four trillion dollars you work on the what do you call it the inverse of that so bring it back to human scale bring it back to you know human cost of four dollars rather than four trillion and it's a way, it's a project in development about trying to think about how we can relate to the absurdity of that scale of money and that scale of technology and that scale of space and scale of time. Um, so again, we can relate to it without writing it off as just being a, you know, 
um, how would you get four trillion discs into the atmosphere in a stable position? Oh, that's just ludicrous. Yeah. And you were talking about the danger with geoengineering that governments could just decide without talking to the people and that it was one of the many roles for artists in this was not just to get the ideas across to people but also perhaps to get the ideas from people across to governments. Yeah, we don't have, we've had no debate whatsoever in this country about geoengineering and that's really um, something that, that, I mean, we've all seen what's happened to the quote-unquote climate debate. But um, one of the differences with the geoengineering is many uh, um, institutions and organisations which are officially in denial or are calling sceptics about climate change support geoengineering. So it's literally a have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too scenario. So that they're willing to engage in a debate where they say, well, we should be doing this geoengineering thing at the same time as holding the co- contradictory point of view that well, climate change isn't actually settled. So another example is there was a large sort of private closed-door symposium in the US about geoengineering proposals, I think about two or three years ago. Uh, I'm just thinking off the top of my head about Clive Hamilton's book, um, Earth Masters playing God with the Climate that came out last year. But off the top of my head, the figure in that book was the Victorian government, as in you know the, the state of Victoria and Australia, sponsored that to the tune of $250,000. And I was thinking, why would a state government department in this country be sponsoring a private closed-door conference on geoengineering in the USA? There's something about that that seems... Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's undemocratic, but there's something about that you think, well, hang on a second, well, what is going on here? So I think one of the things that artists can do is to try and sort of bring some attention to the fact that the conversations which are taking place at very, very high levels of industry and of government um, are taking place behind closed doors and without any notion of public consultation or, or public engagement. And um, art can have an ability to maybe say... Uh, raise some interest in an issue that makes people think that, hang on a second, I'd like to know what my government is thinking or planning about this, especially because of, and again, Clive Hamilton talks about this in his book, uh, Earthmasters, about the higher likelihood of unilateral deployment of a country like, say, China or Russia, uh, not, to, not to point fingers at them or to single anyone out, but just two examples. There are many others as well, Maldives, for instance, um, of saying enough is enough, I've had it up to here, um, uh, UN won't play ball, da 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 da, I'll just go and do, as in a country will go and do what it wants to do, and despite the fact that, of course, atmospheric systems are all shared across nation state uh, uh, boundaries, so what country X would do to um, uh, try and protect its own, so to speak, would most likely affect all of its neighbours and many of them not for the better. So um, if you have a society where there is public debate about those sort of things, it might make it a little bit harder for any country to think they can go off on their own and, and sort of uh, take command of the global thermostat, so to speak. Because it occurs to me that surely not only are they looking at moving where the rain happens, or even if it happens at all in some places, but it's also the sunlight is essential for agriculture and for solar power, which is becoming a, a growing thing in the world. So it seems like it would be a really hostile act to cut off somebody's solar power or even just to reduce their solar power. Yeah, um, it's, it almost sounds like a kind of um, a, a, goon sco, uh, a goon show sketch, but 
there are proposals to create the opposite of the sunshade, which is um, a mirrors and space to amplify and direct light. And I'm talking, um, um, for instance, there's companies that want to um, basically put a, a, a row of uh, mirrors uh, around the moon to create, you know, like a magnifying glass thing. Beam that sunlight down, and so you get very high concentrated solar intensity, and then you get uh, uh, solar thermal power systems, which are getting even more sunlight. So you can imagine you have a scenario where you've got companies saying they're trying to boost the amount of sunlight, specifically to generate power in a relatively cleaner way than fossil fuels, obviously, or substantially cleaner. And you get another uh, uh, organization or company saying they want to block sunlight. So again, it becomes a sort of thing of, uh, 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 I mean, again, it sounds like a, a Guncho uh, kind of scenario. Of, uh, you can't do both. You know, if you increase something by 2% and then decrease it by 2%, you have a, a nil effect. Um, so, you know, that's, yeah. But if you put something in the atmosphere, you can stop other people concentrating the solar power. Oh, sorry, yeah. So, for instance, with the sulfur particle injection, that would, uh, all of these, all of these uh, proposals they call sulfur, sorry, solar radiation management would decrease the amount of sunlight that reaches the Earth. So, um, yeah, for solar power, for agricultural, or sort of thing like that, there'd be a, a noticeable and marked uh, effect from that, yeah. And you mentioned um, a project with vacuum for China. That's an interesting project by a Dutch artist whose uh, uh, name escapes me, but I was very struck. I came across this last year, and he's a sculptor, designer, and he was in China absolutely gobsmacked by the extent of the air pollution, the extent of the way it cut down the amount of light reaching the ground, and proposed a system of embedding, um, I think about sort of 50, mil 50 meter wide, diameter wide, uh, copper tubing under the surface of the uh, 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 earth and um, using static electricity in the copper uh, uh, wiring would suck the uh, smog and pollutants and dust and other things out of the atmosphere. But the way he talked about it, what was so striking, it's not that different from what various sort of environmental engineers want to do, is that he said this is a form of sculpting the atmosphere. Because if you can imagine, you've got, say, a 200 by 200 meter um, rectangular block, and in the middle of this, you've got a 50 meter wide circle, you'd see a distinct, like almost like a halo of light reach that 50 meter uh, um, circle on the Earth, and then you see a very dark area around that. So it was kind of, you know, sort of idea of sculpting with light. And the other thing I was very struck by was that his proposal has had very, very emphatically positive response in very high levels I think it's you know that the mayor of Beijing or, or something to that effect um, in terms of saying we'd like to do a prototype of this and, and see what it's like so rather than treat it as a civic issue of public health with all the increased rates of asthma thinking about it as a okay well can we bring in artists to change the way the chemical composition in a local scale in, in, a, in a city or a neighborhood um, which is again another kind of um, well you know if you live in that city and someone's coming in and doing that to your air um, and doing it under the auspices of an artwork rather than a civil engineering thing that's another debate about you know where where does responsibility lie for these things should it be left to 
civil engineers or that sort of thing? Or, you know, should artists have a way to say, well, you know, have you tried this? Or thinking a bit outside the square, so to speak. Or the circle, in this case. And you've got something coming up in July at the University of Sydney and the University of New South Wales? Yes, so from July the 28th to the 30th uh, this year, there will be a public symposium that's free, really about the social and political aspects of uh, geoengineering. So looking at not about the science as such, not about the technology, not about the engineering, but more about if you know the ethics, the governance, the the, the issues in the humanities and social sciences behind uh, uh, these proposals, and it will be the first public symposium in Australia that's looking at anything around geoengineering outside of the sciences uh, or the industry or technology. So yeah, we're really encouraging people to come along, and there'll be you know sort of a, a public panel sessions and then a, a, a symposium, you know, a nine to five uh, type thing, and yeah, to come along to learn more about what's going on with all of this. And if people want to find want to find the symposium and your work online, where should they look? Sure. So the symposium information will be shortly available on the Sydney University website. If anyone searches for the Sydney Environment Institute. It'll come up on that website shortly. My work is can be viewed. I've got a website, Archangle, which is arch-angle.net, and that's got a bit of info on the various stuff that I've done. I guess I'm keen to see what people think about geoengineering and you know what their responses are to it, and really keen that we could get towards a point where we're having sort of proper the equivalent of town hall debates, which, for instance, in countries like the UK, they've actually started doing. And I think that would be something that would be worthwhile to do in this country is to actually have proper debates in public. Um, so, if, yeah, it's, I encourage people to, to look into it and see what, see what they think about it. Well, Josh, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for having me. That was Josh Wodak speaking about art, climate change and geoengineering at Dorkbot Sydney. You can find Josh Wodak's work at www.archangle.net. That's A-R-C-H-A-N-G-L-E.net. The free public symposium on geoengineering will be at the Sydney Environment Institute from July 28th until the 30th. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Bullock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, Radio On Demand and On The Go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and please review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to the podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And remember, check the website for more information about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. 
and this week they have a special for members on science fiction. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.